You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. We are in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, and uh, we're in a series right now, if you're just joining us, that's called Exiles. Uh, that's the theme I think helps us best navigate what 1 Peter um, is all about. First Peter is not just a seminar on how to have a good marriage or just a seminar about words like submission, authority, or surrender, or whatever. The, the essence of First Peter is about what it means to be somewhere you don't belong or be somewhere that you don't fit in. It means to be a minority in a majority land. It means, um, it means to be outnumbered and populous, but not outnumbered in the spirit. And what does it look like? He, he opens his letter with these, these words. He says, To the elected exiles, what does it mean to realize that no matter where we are, we are not where we are by chance, but by chosenness, but by election? That you and I are firmly footed exactly where we are with the exact amount of friends and resources or lack of resources that we have exactly for this purpose. And whether we're rich or poor, based or abounding, persecuted or unpersecuted, anywhere, the message still remains for us. It's a timely word for today that we're not home. And we are following Jesus. We are following Jesus to a home uh, that he has for us um, in his father's house. And so um, I grew up, uh, my favorite sport was, uh, was basketball. Uh, and so um, uh, I remember distinctly when I was asked back in the second and third grade, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I'm going to be the first Chinese basketball player until Yao Ming took my, took my opportunity. I'm going to be the first Asian basketball player, and I'm just going to prove all you guys wrong. And so um, I don't know if you guys are like me, but I was always like, better uh, on the playground and better in practice than in the game. You know what I'm talking about? Like I would just, just be chewing so much gum, I'd just start slobbering all over myself. I'd be so excited about to play the game and I would just like freeze in the game. You guys ever have that experience? I remember specifically, I always did so good in the tryouts and like could just like make a bunch of, I made a bunch of teams I shouldn't have made. I was in the city team and I was in my little Catholic school and the public school and I made the team, but I could never play in the game like I played in the practice. And I can remember even distinctly this one time at this home game, catching the ball on the side of uh, the baseline there to shoot a three, and that's shorter than any other spot on the court. And I'd shoot and shot 100 of those a day. I used to get up at 6.30 in the morning, go to those shooting machines with the big basket, and you would shoot up over there, and the arc would, you know, like train you and so forth, and work in the rotation, the elbows and the eyes and so forth. And it's like in the game, how many of you guys have been in this, this situation before where what you've done 100 times by muscle memory, when you're under pressure, you can't remember how to make your body do what it did 100 times in practice. Like physically speaking, you cannot get your body to duplicate this muscle memory thing that you've been doing. And so all of a sudden you're like, which way does my wrist go? And where are my knees go? And here comes the ball and this mental thing. And I remember uh, the coach um, sat me down in the middle of the season and he gave me this little speech that I kind of didn't believe at the time, but learned as time went on, is that he said, basketball is 90% in the mind. He says, basketball is 90% mental. And 10% of it is just what flows out of what you're thinking. And so he, he actually had the statistic that apparently, like if you, if you took 10 kids and had them go to the gym and practice free throws for two hours a day shooting free throws, and then you took another group of kids and they didn't go to the gym, but they practiced shooting free throws just in their head, that the people that actually physically practiced the free throws only shot 20% better than the ones that mentally rehearsed the thing in their head. That's how powerful the visualization and, and the mind thing is. And so I've come to find out, maybe like you found out, that the idea of something being mental, uh, first in the mind and then into, into life, doesn't just have to do with basketball, it has to do with everything. 
that the direction of my strongest thoughts are where my life and decisions go always. And I don't know about you, but, but I see this time and time again that oftentimes um, my mind is the hardest thing that I have in my world to change. I'm a pretty stubborn person. How many of you guys have ever been somewhere where the people that you love are there, the place that you want to be is there, the things that you're doing are your favorite, but you got a bad attitude and it doesn't make a lick of difference where you are or who you're with because inside your mind, you're not where you need to be, right? You wake up, and this is why I talk about, I think a lot about these journals is because is the idea is like the 10 minutes that you have at the first thought when you get out of bed and your phone starts scrolling, whatever that thought is, is going to direct your steps because the area of your strongest thoughts are, is the area of, of your life's direction, and so I'm just saying that if you wake up and think, oh, I didn't get that email done, I need to work on that, and I'm 15 steps behind, that's not going to not affect the rest of your day. And so First uh, Peter, in this, in this passage that he talks about, he's going he's gonna to talk about this topic that Paul talks about as well, and it's called um, the attitude of Christ or the mind of Christ. He's, he's speaking to suffering Christians, those that are persecuted minority in a majority land, and what he says to them is that, as I've said in the rest of the letter, it's like, I want you to engage and embody the strategy of Christ in suffering, but I also want you to engage the attitude of Christ in suffering. It's that I want you, like I've just been talking about for the last three chapters, to return good for evil. When evil comes your way, the human nature will want to retaliate, insult for insult, evil for evil. But you're not to do as the pagans do. You're to do what Christ did. And when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. He returned good for evil. And when good for evil is, is given, it's a loud message because everybody can return evil for evil. Everyone can inter- return good for good, but only Christ returns good for evil. So the gospel is preached loud. Like Steph Curry on a three-point line, there's no greater opportunity that you have in your life than when evil comes your way because that's where you can display the nature of Christ. He says, but I don't just want you to do that and be there in your body but in your mind is that your attitude, your attitude is to be like Christ in the sufferings of Christ. And so this is the verse, we'll get into it in just a moment, but just the key verse here before we get into it. Therefore, it says, since Christ suffered in his body, he says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude as Christ, because whoever suffers in the body, he says, is done with sin. And so here's what, in a nutshell, I think Peter would tell us is the mindset of Christ in the face of his enemy. And that is that it's done with sin. It is done with sin. Whenever we attack, whenever we encounter pain and suffering, what Christ knows is that the human mind, in attacking and approaching suffering, will, will want to go back and back down to an old lifestyle. This is what's, what's real about you and me. When, I, when, I, when my faith encounters evil and I'm asked to give good for evil, it's painful. It is painful to be backstabbed. It's painful to be talked about. It's painful to not be received. It's, t- it's painful to give cups of cold water and be rejected. And so he's associating, he's saying, when you go and give good for evil, oftentimes evil will not return good. It'll just stay evil. And so then you ask yourself the, po- the question, what is the point? What is the point? If they're not happy about who I am and what I'm doing, and I'm not happy about who I am and what I'm doing, and all I'm encountering is pain, and all I'm encountering is suffering, and none of this is seeming to pay off, then where does my mind go And he's saying, this is where the mind of Christ is. Well, I know where I'm not going to go. I'm not going back. I'm not going back to sin because I'm done with sin. Okay, so Christ is denying the body in that case, but we're denying the flesh in the sense of sin. And so this is what the attitude of Christ is, is it's done with 
sin. The way that Paul talks about it, not Peter, is dead to sin. So I don't know if you guys have ever been in a relationship before or seen somebody in a relationship before where you break up, but you're not really broken up. Okay, so you broke up, but it's like, it's almost like the relationship is even more because it's like, you know, it's like a uh, forbidden romance now and we're not supposed to be, you know, talking to each other and so forth. And so there's this like flirty thing that comes about. And so the people are like, they're broken up, but they're not really broken up. They're like in this little in-between phase of like not really broken up, right? And then, you know, it goes on and on and maybe the relationship has gone for a long time and you're just like, well, for old time's sake, you kind of go through this repetitive pattern where you kind of get together and go back and hot and cold and together and back out and together and back out. And then there's a moment when this happens when the person just says, I am done with that person. <laughs> I am over that person. Now, whatever it is that I thought was cute about his genes or the way that he smelled, it is not cute. That is, that is ugly to me. That is gross. I think he's the worst and I am done. I'm over that relationship. And that's what I think Peter is saying about the relationship of the person that's suffering in Christ towards sin is that I don't know where I'm going, but returning back to my old life is not an option, okay? So this is what he is talking about, is, is, is the mind of Christ in the face of suffering. Join with me in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. It says this. It says, therefore, and every time we see the word therefore in a New Testament text, we should always ask ourselves the question, you've been to Bible school, therefore, why is... No, what is the therefore, therefore? These stems help us to understand Peter's argument that he builds throughout one through five. And he says, therefore, and then he says, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. So, okay, so let's go back. I've, I found the two therefores. And sometimes if you're reading the Bible, also know that the therefore isn't just the verse prior. Sometimes in this case, the chapter four, therefore, actually refers to a chapter two because... Okay, so we're going to go back to chapter two and chapter three because to him it's all one, uh, it's all one argument, it's all one flow of thought. Verse twenty-one, chapter two, it says to this: "To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example." This is what the whole letter is really built on: that you should follow in his steps. Why are we submitting to the government again? Why are we submitting to our spouses? Why are we submitting to in the church and all that stuff? It's like, well, is it because? because we're stuck in the 1950s? Is it because we're conservative? Is it, is it because I'm scared of the government? No, it's none of these things. It's because of therefore. Because Christ suffered and Christ submitted himself. And if the Messiah in, grew up in diapers under imperfect parents, imperfect religion, the Roman government and Pharisaical rulers, and he submitted, he might know what he's doing, right? So that's the therefore. It says he committed no sin and it says no deceit was found in his mouth. He was a sinless sufferer. Verse 23, it says, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges, judges justly. So the therefore, at least one of them in 1 Peter chapter 2, okay, is that Christ, Christ did not return evil for evil and his mindset is, I don't care what they say about me, none of that changes who I belong to. This is his mindset. He's saying, He's saying their judgment is not a trustworthy judgment. Their judgment is not just, it's unjust, and I trust my life to the one who judges justly. He is the only rubric that's not drunk. He is the only one who sees truth from evil. He's the only one that defines my life, and I have no budget to listen to anybody else. So that's his mindset when it comes to persecution. Then he goes on in another therefore, verse, uh, chapter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Here's another suffering. Therefore, verse, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. It says, He was put in the body, he was put to death in the body, and made alive in the spirit. The therefore is that Jesus walked in front of his enemies but didn't live before them. He only lived before his Father in heaven and knew that their, their insults and their conflagratory remarks were not just, okay? 
And he knew that the pain that he felt, even in his perfect sinless body, was his, was his flesh uh, dying. He was dying to the body to live in the spirit. And so that death in the body means life in the spirit. And so here's what, here's what Peter does, is he wants that attitude in our heart. And the way he does that in the first section and the second section is he arms us to have the attitude of Christ to think the same way about sin, that I'm not bartering with sin, I'm not fasting with sin, I'm not thinking about going back to sin, okay? He knows that when it is in the last seven days you and I sinned, whenever you and I transgressed this last week, whenever we slid back to an old lifestyle, here's what he understands. He understands it happened in our head before it ever happened in our feet. He understands that we probably encountered some kind of a pain, you and me, probably this week, encountered some kind of a pain that left us tired, lonely, or scared, or all three. And he says, it all, and he says we cannot have, afford to have a thought in our head that doesn't sound like Christ's thoughts. Okay? So he's going to equip us to arm us to think like Christ in that situation, because what's in the mind is what travels to the feet. He wants us to have the mind of Christ. And so he equips us with two different armaments. It's a, soul, it's kind of a, it's a military thing. And the, and, and the way that he arms us to have the mind of Christ is to reflect on the past and consider the future. Are you with me? So we're going to go through this, this letter, this little chapter, and he's going to take us reflecting on the past and considering the future. This is how it goes. He says, the people that suffer with the mind of Christ, they're not just taking a break from sin. They're done with it. They're dead to sin. He says, as a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time, he's talking about the past. You've been there before. You've been at the party before. You've stayed later before. You've tried the thing before. You've had another one before. You've had a third one before. You've, you've, done, you've done the things. You've been there before. I've been there before. So he's reasoning with you here to arm you for all of your days to have the attitude of Christ. You've spent enough time in the past, he says, doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatries. The big three, money, sex, power. The God of me for the altar of more. This is how it always is. It's money and sex and power. It's always about the money and the sex and the power. It could be a little bit of the money and sex and the power or a lot of the bit of the money and the sex and the power, but anything we put above Christ is sin, right? And so he's saying that that stuff, that stuff offered you no life. He says, they are surprised that you do not judge them, excuse me, join them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you. So I think what Peter's doing to his Roman audience, ex-pagan audience who has just now come into the fellowship of Christ, experiencing suffering for the first time, wondering why it's worth it, and tempted to just go on back and retreat to where they came from in the first place, is he's saying, hey, let's do some sober calculations about your past. Let's really think about this. Tell me a time when you got the big job promotion and you got the extra paycheck thing and you, you know, went on the trip and you had the Christmas thing and you held the thing in your hands that you were pining after and you wanted so bad when it came to money, the thing that, the stuff that stuff can get you. Tell me one time that you got that thing in your hand and you didn't feel some slight sense of dissatisfaction in it, as though it gave you death instead of what it was promising you life, right? Let's get some really, let's really calibrate this thing and really tell, and really ask yourself, what has sin ever gotten you? Like really ask yourself in the past, has there anything materially that the God of me and the God of more has ever actually made you more satisfied Consider this thing. Many of the guys in this room, because of the internet age that we live in and the prolific availability of pornography, as well as maybe just hooking up and physical relationships, have been to the bottom of the sexual barrel, have absolutely, you know, maybe, you know, 
engaged in, in this kind of stuff that he's talking about to the fullest extent. And by the way, it could, be, it could be an ounce or it could be a pound, okay? It could be any scalable sense of sin. But how many of you guys have ever gotten to the end of some promiscuous choice when it comes to the God of me and the God of more in the area of sexual life and thought to yourself, that brought me a lot of life. That, that, really, that really brought me a lot of spiritual health and life. He said, let's do some calculation about this kind of stuff and, and, and think about this. You've spent enough time there, right? Haven't you been there before? And don't you know better? And when you wake up the next morning, don't you tell yourself? Isn't that what happens? Like the Spirit of the Lord, it's not saying a person that suffers is perfect and never sins. What it's saying is the person that wakes up that is in the suffering of Christ, once they go back and revert for a couple days in their lifestyle, the Holy Spirit begins to speak in them and goes, man, what are you doing? That's not even who you are. There's nobody that's filled with the Spirit that gets done with the debauchery, you know, major fall or failure or backsliding and never goes, that's who I want to be in five years. That's exactly what was worth my time and my money and my attention. That's exactly what brings me life. Like, he's like, let's really visit this thing and really, really seek out the mind of Christ. Has, has anyone, right, money, sex, power, has anyone really, you know, everybody wants to be in control and you call the shots and you get to call the shots and then, you know, nobody likes you anyways and it doesn't go as far as well as you think that it does and then you realize that power corrupts every human heart, including your own, and everybody knows that it's like, that's not the answer to the problem. So he's saying, let's really, let's really think about this. Let's really consider the past. So he, he heightens the stakes, as you saw in verse 4. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living. And so not only are you in the place of suffering and pain, and you have all this internal pressure to just go back to where you come from. I mean, what does it really matter in the first place? Why am I sweating it out in this pain um, line of scrimmage here at the frontier of this thing in my life of faith? Why am I doing this? They don't like me. I don't like me. I'm grumpy. Why does this really matter? And not only that, are you having internal pressures to go back home and take your toys? They start to heap abuse on you. The word in Greek is to malign you. They start to talk about you. So you have this external pressure. He says, okay, let's, let's arm you for that. Let's think about this. Let's take a little, let's take a little visit to the future. Okay? Let's look, let's look at the future. He says, in the future, verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Okay, so what he's talking about here is if you've seen a burned-down house before uh, at the Swamp Rabbit property, we had this crazy thing where one of our buildings, like, literally burned down, okay? One of the three houses. You go out there, and fire doesn't treat every substance the same way. You see all the wood and the probably asbestos in the roof and all that stuff. It's all caved in. It's burned down. And what's basically there still, because it wasn't a crazy fire, is bricks and the, and the piping beneath it. And so what, what the scripture teaches about the day of the Lord is that the wheat and the tares that grow up in the same thing. And the judgment of the Lord comes through and it burns through this place to purify the old heavens and the old earth to renew and reveal the new heavens and the earth that's right here in our midst that we can't see. So right now we're seeing a, a, a combination, a, 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 um, a mixture really, an integration of both things that are made by the spirit and made by the flesh and, and the judgment, the day of the Lord will come through and wipe out everything that was made by the flesh and reveal only things that are made in the spirit. And that's what he says in verse five. They will give an account. All of us will give an account for our lives uh, before the Lord. And anything um, that, is, that is living in the spirit will remain. And anything that I do with my own attitude, because God of me and more, 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 all that stuff's gonna get burned away. That's what he says. Verse six. He says, for this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. This is the good news, is that we are not judged on our account, but on Christ's account. And we are judged innocent and treated as him because he was treated like us. 
And he says that that's why the gospel is preached to all men, the people that are spiritually alive and the people that are spiritually dead, so that they might be judged according to the human standards, because we all die. But not all of us live in the spirit. And in regard to the body, um, some of us will live according in regards to God's spirit. And so he's saying, if you want to be armed with the attitude of Christ, consider what has sin ever gotten you? And he says, consider where sin always takes you. I don't know if you guys um, in 2004 ever saw this movie called Supersize Me. Uh, it was a documentary that was all about uh, the dangers of McDonald's and fast food. And at the time, I was a college student, and we had a McDonald's in my basement that was open until like 1130 at night, which was no bueno for your boy. Because I was over the chicken nuggets, but I was in a romance, like a love affair with McFlurries at the time. So I was going to town at the moment in time when this thing came out. And so it came out in 2004. It was this documentary about this guy, middle-aged, normal guy, and he goes on this thing to eat McDonald's for 30 days straight, okay? And so, um, and so I'm like, okay, you know, I'll watch this, I'll watch this thing. Somebody's like, this is going to change your life forever. And I was like, I don't know, because I love McDonald's a lot. And so he starts out. And he, uh, he's like making little jokes like, oh, look at the little burger looks like kind of like mine. And he's like, supersize me. Every time, that's the other thing is that they ask him to supersize it. He always has to upcharge it and supersize it. So 68 cents more for 90 gallons of Coca-Cola or whatever it is, okay? So he's pounding it. And, and I'm like, okay, you know, like this will be, be fun. And so then I think he gets to like day 10 and literally he starts eating it and throwing it up out of the window. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is day 10. This is not gonna be a good thing. Okay, so day 10, he's, he's throwing up out the window. It got real around day 20. They did like a, a body cam thing where he's like doing a selfie at like three in the morning on day 20. And he's saying, my heart isn't beating the right way anymore. I don't know what's wrong. Like there's this irregular heartbeat and I can like not breathe when I'm going up the steps. Like it's not funny anymore. Like he's sweating and it looks like, and he's like checking in with the doctors and it's looked like he won't even finish. This is day 20. He checks into the doctor at the end of the movie. He's been doing it for 30 days. And the doctor has recorded that he has, in that 30 days, consumed 30 pounds of sugar at McDonald's. 30 pounds. Go to Publix right now. Go get a, a pound of sugar and just hit one after another for 30 straight days, right, in that Coca-Cola Classic, okay? So you're looking at this different. For 30 days, okay, he consumed, in the 30 days, 12 pounds of, like, fat in a jar. They, like, show you what this fat looks like, and you're like, it's, it's like... It's like the grossest thing when they put it all together, like the math problem in the charts. And you're like, oh my gosh, right? Okay. He gains 24 pounds in his body weight. His cholesterol goes up 60%. And he doubles his possibility of getting a heart attack in 30 days with McDonald's. How many of you guys know that McDonald's is cute until you see what happens to somebody when they eat it, eat it for 30 straight days, right? And that's the idea, is that, is that Peter's doing some reasoning with you and I to not just think about the present, but to think about the past, and not just think about the past, but think about the future. Because there's a point at which, when somebody's a rebel without a cause when they're 16, and they're flirting it up, and they're, you know, I'm gonna go see for myself. That was one of my favorite Instagram influencers right now. This girl's got this joke, Christian girl. She's like, I'm gonna go see for myself. Right? Small or big, dishonoring parents, right? Just little things, like, like not handling conflict well. Take a little thing like that. Holding grudges, not handling forgiveness well. I'm just going to see for myself. I don't need the word of God in my life. 
you know, man does not live on bread alone, but on every Instagram post that it ever became to man, and I liked them all, so now I must be okay, right? We all think we are like outside the rules on this thing until you actually see, go see somebody who hasn't handled forgiveness in their life, not when they're 20, but when they're 50. See how it works. It's not cute. Sin's always cute, and it's like, oh, I'm a rebel without a cause. My parents don't want me to sin, but I'm cool, so I, you know, I don't play by the rules. I just kill the McFlurries, right? It's cute until you see what happens times a multiple of 40 years, 50 years, and tell me that those people aren't trying to tell us about the little things that sin is poisoned for, the little things even, not just the big things, but even the things that we think that we have under control. He's saying, he's saying the, way, the, way that, the way that you die to sin is to, is to ask yourself, what has sin ever gotten me? And then ask yourself this question, where is sin actually taking me? Where is sin actually taking me? And so here's the deal. The mind of Christ is that we are dead to sin because ultimately what the argument, if you really pay attention, is he's saying because sin is dead in us. Sin is dead and it's dying. And just when you pluck a leaf off of a tree, it might be green for a little while, but it's on the way to death. And that's all that sin ever is. And he's trying to, he's trying to show us an expiration date. Like there is a day coming when the new heavens and the new earth blow through this place. And anything that I do apart from the, the, the reliance and dependence on God will be gone forever from this place. And the only thing that will remain is the things I do with God in my walk with him, with Jesus. And so this is what he's saying is that sin is dead because ultimately, or I'm dead in sin because sin is dead in me and ultimately it'll be dead um, in all of eternity, in all of the new heavens and the new earth. I remember um, just getting into the professional world around 2008 and they were still doing fax machines back then. And I remember like kind of getting in debates with these secretaries, like in the beginning, because I was just like 21 and I was like not really telling anybody what they ought to be doing. And so um, they were like, yeah, you need to like send in, you know, your health records or whatever, or sometimes it's your tax records or your, your bank records. And they would tell you to, to send it in on the fax machine. And I had like, like 2008 iPhone in my pocket and I'm like, I don't want to like stir the boat here, but like I could just take a picture of this and email it over to you, you know, is what I would go through my mind. But I wasn't bold enough to say anything. But as time goes on, like in 2012, I had kind of a whole campaign. I was like, now I would be like talking to the, you know, state farm person. I'd be like, now listen, you know, Bob, like, I could literally take this picture and email it to you, and we don't have to do the whole phone number thing and fax thing, right? And I'll send it over. And now, in 2021, I don't know if you're coming with me, I'll go start a GoFundMe or something, but like, I will not be faxing anything. I will not be faxing. And when people ask me to fax, I'm not going to do it. And he, he is explaining, right? It's not just that turning from the old life to live in the new life is just about turning from sin into life. It's about turning from an expired and obsolete past. There will be a day when the new heavens and the new earth blow through this place and somebody's going to go, what do you mean you take care of yourself before your neighbor? What do you mean? Like when we get into heaven and his reign is established and the, and, and the day of the Lord comes through this place and burns through all this stuff that we think we're big and mighty and do it on our own and all that stuff, he's going to burn through all that stuff and all that's left is things in the spirit and it's going to be the bride and the spirit that cry out, what do you mean you think you're better than somebody because you're a different race? What do you mean you think that you, you don't, you're, 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 not, you're not called to forgive your neighbor. What do you mean? Like, like none of that, all that stuff is going to be obsolete. And so ultimately this letter is not just about leaving sin for the spirit. It's about leaving the past for the future because all of creation is only going that direction. All of creation, all of creation is going towards what Jesus has pronounced in the kingdom of heaven at hand 
uh, rapidly advancing into the age to come. Okay, so that's why he gets into his language right here in verse 7. Listen, listen, listen how he talks about the chronology, verse 7 in 1 Peter 4. The end of all things is near, says Peter. And notice this, in the end of all things is near is not a command to go get maps and go figure out and pinpoint, you know, which politician said this and where's the mark of the beast and all that stuff. It's just, it's saying, it's, it's, it's not saying to analyze and to duck and cover, right? It's not saying the end is near, so go run and hide. It's saying the end is near, and so the future's coming. So go, go get busy in the spirit. Leave your sin behind, throw off everything that entangles you, and run into the future because that's where everything's headed. Fax machines might be easy. Fax machines might be familiar. They might actually work a little bit, but they're not gonna be here in the future. They're gonna be done because sin is dead and it's dying, right? And so leave your past behind because the future only has the spirit of God. That is where the future is headed in all of creation. And so he says, he says, be alert, be sober-minded that you may pray. And here's what we ought to be doing. There's three things that'll be out there on the screen that I think that he is inviting each of us into, anyone here that has the spirit of God inside of them to run from their past and into the future, into this kind of life. And as to number one, love deeply, to number two, host without grumbling, and number three, to give graciously. graciously. So there's three things in this passage that we can do a takeaway from, but it's love deeply, host without grumbling, and give graciously. Verse nine, uh, oh, excuse me, uh, verse eight, it says, above all, in this new kind of life, notice how that list, remember debauchery and drinking and orgies and all that stuff, the premise of that whole list was lust. Lust is what can I take? It's looking at a flower and saying, this is so beautiful, I wanna take from it. But love is the exact opposite. It's, look at this flower, it's so beautiful, I want to give to it. And he's saying the two different ages, the age of the past and the age to come, are completely different, and they're run by different guidelines. And he's saying the first thing that you'll have to know when you come into this new future age and live for it now is to love deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. That's not saying, guys, that that means that if you love somebody, it's going to cover a bunch of your sins. It's saying love others because of the multitude of the sins that he's covered for you. Every now and again, you'll have a friend and they'll spin out and they'll be on pain pills or they'll have some hidden sin and you won't know about it. And it'll be the most alienating, um, shaking thing to you because the things you think you know about people you don't really know. And you start to look around you and you start to wonder about what we really are telling each other and where we really are in our lives and what we really answer when somebody asks us how we're really doing. And it makes you want to ask this question, like, what is the thing that you're not telling me? Like, this is, I think, the, the ethos and the pattern of what Christian community is. It's not just like I'm going to smile at you when you're here. It's like, how are you really doing? Because I don't want to love the fake version of you. I want to love the deep version of you. And it's saying, this is the kind of gospel love because love is not just covering over and gleaning over your personality that you've well curated and cultivated or whatever that you've done in, in your personal life, but it's loving the deep things for the things that you don't deserve, not the things that you think that you do deserve. And so the first rule of thumb, if you notice, from moving from the past age to the age to come, is that in this climate, past the fax machines, we do love deeply here. We don't do shallow love. We don't do politics love. We do deep love, is what he says, because love covers multitudes of sins. Number two, he says that what the substance of the spirit uh, creation is all about, the new creation, is to offer, he says, hospitality to one another without Grumbling. This word hospitality is not just about entertainment and sweet tea. It means to reach out to strangers and neighbors and sojourners and all the people that would walk through your fields to invite them to the table. So there's a picture um, I have of uh, one of my favorite belongings that uh, I own in our house is the uh, Pottery Barn table, which is, uh, I think it seats about eight people. Uh, there are some of four of my favorite people there, a little Ali, Alec, Leo, and uh, Papa Wong right there, Cam Chow, uh, the bull himself. 
And so uh, you can put little extensions on there. If you put the extensions, I think you can put 12, 12 people around that table. And it's in our new little dining room. And I did some math on this because I want to do a series in this next month called Around the Table. It is based on this passage in Luke. I'm going to read in a second. But I did some calculating. And if the Lord gives me the average age of life for the rest of my days, if I'm intentional about one meal that I'm at that table with, I have approximately 20,000 more meals at that table. Which is a lot of meals, but it's not an infinite amount of meals. And I think about that number, and maybe it's, you know, 19,000 now, or whatever, 999. But I think about that meal, and what Jesus is saying and what Peter is saying is that that table is not just for family, but that table is for church. Like, in a way, this church, like, like our being together, if, if, if anything, hopefully we are growing from now until later to grow more towards family, not away, right? We are a family that's being built up by the Spirit to be the family of God that he's the head of. And so hopefully churches are becoming families. But at the same time, the Spirit, almost in the opposite end of that spectrum, is trying to change churches and the families at the same time as he's changing families in the churches. And the first generation of churches, if you were to ask them to take a hashtag selfie picture of what the church is and define it, they would not have taken a picture of a stage with a singer. They would have taken a picture of that. That is what the early church would have thought of when it comes to the issue of hospitality and the gospel. The gospel, the table in the gospel, with the centerpiece of the gospel in it, is not just for friends, but for neighbors, strangers, and even enemies. This is the way that Jesus talks about neighboring and about hospitality. He says in verse 12, Luke 14, Jesus says to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, he says, don't invite your friends. He says, don't invite your brothers, or your sisters, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, he says, they might invite you back. And then you might be repaid, verse 13. But biblical hospitality, gospel hospitality looks like this, verse 13. But when you give a banquet, he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, old hospitality was about me and more and mine, but new hospitality is about him and others and neighbors and enemies and strangers in the gospel. And so what does it look like to use, not all, but some of those 20,000 dinner tables at your table, at the table that you have, that God has placed in your dining room to be a church, to be strangers and neighbors to, and to invite people into, into gospel hospitality? Peter seems to say that's a good second step, at least, for what it looks like to not live in the fax machine age, but to live in the age of the spirit that we live in. Lastly, he says in verse 11, if anyone speaks, he talks about gifts, they should do so as one who speaks with the very words of God. And then he says, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God might be praised through Jesus Christ. So you see how there's two different gifts there that he lists in 1 Peter's rendition of spiritual gifts. He says there's talkers and then there's doers. Right? There's talkers and there's doers. And some of us need to do a little talking, a little more doing. And some of us, you know, we can lead and cultivate because words make worlds. And leadership and, and speaking, rather, um, leadership, I guess, is both talking and doing, I shouldn't say that, but speaking, let's say, and, and, and thinking about what we're saying, it matters to God. So in verse 11, he says it this way, if you speak, you should think about speaking uh, with the words of God. I had a, a pastor one time who encouraged me to write text messages three times, and this is true, you could go try it out. He said, because the second time you write the text, it'll always be better than the first time. And it'll just have a different word, or you'll craft it differently, or you think about their mom, or you'll think maybe this was the right decision anyways, or I'll just text them later. You know, like there's a thing where you filter it, and if you filter it, the second one is always better than the first one. And then he said, well, you think about it, why don't you just do it three times? Think about it and write it the third time, because the third time is better than the second time. And so what I think he's getting at here is you're realizing that words create worlds. One of the very first things that Adam was ever given in the Garden of Eden was to name things. And naming things, the power of authority to author something. And the way that you encourage people, the way that you speak, 
It's either coming from the flesh or coming from the spirit. It's either coming from the past or it's guided towards the future. And he's saying, those of you that have that gift to talk, you are a talker, consider how you talk. Consider if what you are saying, Jesus would say. Would Jesus have just texted that? Would Jesus have said more than that or less than that? Would Jesus have brought more into the conversation? Consider the way that you talk, because that's a gift, and it doesn't come from you, and so therefore it should honor and give praise upwards and not just inwards. And so how am I talking matters. Then he says, if you're a serving person, if you're an introverted person, you just would roll over and just die before you had to go talk to somebody. He says, then serve with the strength of God. That's one of the hard things, right? To serve behind the scenes and then wonder if anybody notices or if God even notices. And there's not a lot of strength in that. There's a lot of discouragement when I think my service doesn't matter, but he's saying it does matter. And so therefore, if it's not done and served to them, but unto the Lord, there's strength in there and you can, and you can run and not grow weary and there's a serving that comes with the grace. And so it's giving as we've been given and not as others deserve. And so this is just a taste, I think, of what First Peter is saying in the age to come. We're not doing fax machines anymore. And that flesh lust life is set aside for a spirit-filled love life. And this is all that we have to look forward to. And here's my simple intentional question to kind of gather up these thoughts in this passage. But really, it's not just about past and, or excuse me, about sin and spirit. It is about past and future. So I wanted to ask you this question. How are you doing with this question? What does this make you think of? Am I living? The question is, from my past, or am I living from my future? In other words, am I living to run away from my past, to do a little bit better than I did yesterday in my past, to manage my sin, or maybe even get away with as much sin as possible? Am I living with my, with my face looking backwards toward my, towards my past? Or, as Paul says, am I forgetting my past and laying it aside to cast my gaze towards where I'm headed, which is the future in the spirit. By God's grace, next year and the year after that and into eternity past, like you are gonna be going somewhere and you are gonna be less lust and more love in the future. And, and I think what Peter is saying here is don't look back. When you encounter pain and stress and strife, when you're hungry, lonely, and tired, don't look back. Don't give up and don't give in. Don't clap back because the mind of Christ is done with sin. The mind of Christ is dead to sin. And so you have an opportunity to use all of the um, cylinders in your mind to fully fixate on the future glory of where God is leading you. In the spirit, okay, there is no man, woman, uh, slave, barbarian. There is, only, there is only one body in Christ and it's all headed towards future glory, which is why he closes up his letter to say that in all things, God would be praised in Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.